Thank you for tuning in to the sermon webcast of Living Savior. We are one church serving in two locations, Asheville and Hendersonville, North Carolina. For more information, go to lsavior.org. I have a lot of scars. Do you? Right here, my right index finger, and this is a bad one because I'm right-handed. In a previous occupation, a knife slipped and it went in very terribly and I actually almost lost part of my right index finger. So that would have been a funny joke if you knew me like this. Maybe not so funny. I can still see the chunk that's missing. That's a memorable one. I have one here that got gashed when it got pinched between two heavy pieces of equipment. On my left hand, I I was clenching a branch and I wasn't really paying attention or being as careful as I should have and a saw blade nicked it and it split open. I got stitches and then as a high schooler, I thought I could take them out early and then when it split open again, I just figured it didn't matter because, you know, high schoolers with their not fully developed brains. (laughs) Sorry, high schoolers, it's true. (laughs) So that's a notable one. It's about two inches. My, hand, my hands are loaded with scars. I don't even remember where they all came from, but I can, I can see them. Do you have a lot of scars too? So you look at your hands, your arms, maybe your legs. And when we speak about scars, we don't just talk about that slight discoloration or pigment that is different as our skin healed up over a scrape, a scratch, or a cut. We don't even just always think about scars in the literal physical sense, do we? Because you know what I mean when I say the following, that we have scars on our minds and on our hearts too, don't we? It was an injurious insult. It was a cutting word. It was a painful experience. And if only we could see those scars, they might be a lot larger than a two-inch gash on one's left hand. We might not want to see them altogether because those can be the largest and most painful of all. And yet, whether we're talking about literal scars on our legs or on our hands, or metaphorical scars on our minds or on our hearts, same can be said of all of them. Scars you have, scars I have. A surmising statement might be just this. They all bring an unsightly reminder of a painful memory from the past. And we can't forget. Could we even say that that's largely emblematic of all of life? That one experience after the next, yes, there's joys, yes, there's triumphs, yes, there is success, but it's one painful experience and then the scarred memories of the past until we die and then we don't remember the scars anymore. But that leaves scars too for others, doesn't it? This is not fatalism speaking. This is reality speaking. And this is also us who have much more to say than just that. Do we not? We have so much more to say than that. Could it be, my dear friends, and this is very important, could it be that you and I, that, we, that God would give us scars, so to speak, and even, even all of those painful experiences, and he would bring about a happy ending despite the pain that's, hap- that's happened? That he would actually work through whatever it was that we experienced that was awful on the exterior or on the interior in order to give us not only a heightened appreciation for heaven, 
but even better prepare us for it right now? Could it be? I invite you to have the second reading open from Revelation chapter 22. As you have that open in front of you, you and I are going to see this. That on account of heaven, no matter if it scars on the outside of your skin or in the inside of your mind and heart, on account of heaven, scars actually do have a happy ending. Now, when people look at Revelation, they can get in trouble in a hurry. People love to read it because of its imagery and its symbolism, but people get in trouble when they are using the wrong lens. Think of this as an example. Imagine I asked you to tell me what you see on Mount Pisgah from the front church door, but I gave you a microscope. How's that going to work out? Or I gave you a Petri dish. And a local biologist said, there's something really cool in there. And I got to look at it and it was really cool. And I gave you the Petri dish and I said, I would love for you to look in there, not to tell me only the number of things that you see, but the details of what you see. Here's some binoculars. How would that go? With the wrong lens, you can't properly see. So it is with the type of literature in the Bible. You know what type of lens to put on when you're reading poetry, when you're reading historical narrative. When you're reading prose or when you're reading parables of Jesus, so too this is apocalyptic literature. It's something different. You need a different lens in order to properly understand it. Like if you're reading sections from Daniel or Ezekiel or Zechariah, which both contain chunks of this type of literature, so too with Revelation, you have to put on the proper lens. Namely, this is imagery. It requires us to put on a type of binoculars and from a long ways away to not zoom into details that are far too advanced for us to grasp. God is describing the cataclysmic clash between good and evil, heaven and hell. How can he fit such divine subjects into finite minds? He can't. We can't. So we use his pictures. So we get an idea. Every number, every symbol, every picture, every image, it gives us an idea. So what is the idea that we get today as we talk about a joy that does not depend on our circumstances? A joy that is not contingent upon success or achievement or victory in life. It transcends all of that with all of the lessons which, as you may imagine, and we probably don't say it enough, these are pre-appointed readings, how timely they are once again. We didn't handpick these. They were already established and are appearing in countless churches all across the globe, these readings, and all three, what do you see? God lifting our eyes heavenward, focusing our faith on where we are meant to belong. So whether it's Paul who says we must undergo many trials before entering the kingdom of God, or we listen to our Savior who says, in a little while you will have grief, but your grief will turn to joy, or we're zeroing in on this image, this vision of heaven, God is giving us something outside of this world for our joy then and also for our joy today. Don't we look forward to that? Once again, though, it is an image. Look at the opening verse. What does he say? The 12 gates were 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl, the great street of the city of gold, as pure as transparent glass. Remember, this is an image, so how would you explain what you just read? Do you fully understand that? Me neither. Here's my explanation on exactly what this looks like. I have no idea. 
And if you say, oh, I I perfectly understand it. No, you don't. Twelve pearls, you have this image of a beautiful white pearl, and it has this iridescent type of coloration to it, but it's perfect, and it's pure, and it's white. And then there's glass that is so pure and and laid out that it's as transparent as glass. I think I've seen a metal worker or a jeweler try to work with gold and do things like that, but I'm struggling to try and comprehend what is this. Again, We're not supposed to zoom in with a microscope. We're looking with binoculars at trying to understand the idea of what God is describing, and that is heaven. And of all the things that he is describing, he is describing what we ultimately long for. Think of what else he says. I mean, not only do you not walk on streets like this, not only do you not walk up to gates like this, but you don't even understand an existence like this, nor do I. Think of it. There's no need for the sun or the moon. There's no rotations for seasons because everyone enjoys the lasting day of peace, basking in the perfect amount of sun that comes from none other than the Lamb himself. You know what that means? You don't have to wait for a season to change so you can get rid of the old and maybe find something new. There's only enjoying the perfect reality of newness all the time and never being tired of it. Do you get that? Me neither. <laughs> the fact that there's no darkness, there's no, the gates are always open because there's no dark there because we know what happens in the dark, right? Even, even the idea of walking outside in the dark, you might be a grown-up and you might be a big boy and say, I'm not afraid of the dark anymore, and that might be true, but you and I still know what goes on in the dark. We know that there are policemen who have to patrol certain places and they know exactly not only where to go but when specifically at night because they, like we, know what goes on at night. The gates are always open because there's never ever a concern about security. How many of us have those special doorbells where you can see if there's someone at the front door or maybe you have surveillance on your whole property, you have motion sensor lights? You might have motion detectors at the driveway, sends you an alarm. And whatever you have as your gadget of preference or not is not the point. The point is there's something that exists inside of every single one of our heads and hearts that leads us to think about that. Suffice it to say, it's insecurity. It's not only the insecurities that we have from the world around us, although that truly exists. We think about dangers. We think about those who wish to do us harm. There is evil in the world all around us. We don't only think about that. What about the insecurities that exist inside the walls of our own heads and behind the doors of our own hearts? We all have them. In heaven, it's not even a thought, a thing. The gate's always open. There's no locking your car door. There's no double-checking the deadbolt. There's none of that. You you don't even think about those things because all you have is perfect security as you stand securely in the presence of your Savior. You're you're not worrying about any, it's not even a distant memory because you don't even know what to remember. It's forgotten. This is how God describes heaven. And you know why he has to describe heaven this way? By telling us what it's not. No evil, no deceit, no scheming, no darkness. You don't have to worry about the gates being closed. It's because we can't think of it in any other way. I mean, look at our lives. How long do you have to go before all of a sudden you realize that there is pain lurking around any corner? It might even be the memory of one comment that was made this week. 
It maybe deprived you of sleep. It could have affected your time at home. It could have damaged a relationship that you have with a spouse, a child, a friend. One. One comment. It could have been one experience you've had in the past that has now left you, maybe not with PTSD, or maybe it has. One experience that has now left you scarred with the way that you might interact with somebody new, the way you might open yourself up because you've been burned, or the way you might interact with somebody who is close to you because of family, because you, now know, you no longer have the type of security you would want to have with that person. One. One interaction. It can take one phone call. One. You could be carrying on and doing anything throughout the course of the day, and one phone call will change your life and the life of many others. That's all it takes. This is the life that we live. We're not meant to be here. So my dear friends, might I ask, then why are we so, why are we so connected to this place? Why do we so easily forget as we trudge through life thinking that we are at home here and heaven is strange? No, heaven is our theology. Heaven is our life. So much here does not matter. And time after time, God has to remind us. It's not like this word uh, from Scripture today is strange to us. We've heard this before. But God sometimes has to pile drive these into our heads and into our hearts and even remind us of why these scars exist in our life because we're not meant to have this. Are we really meant to experience pain and exhibit scars internally, externally, and that's it? We do not belong here. Isn't it fascinating how time after time, when we look at the pain from the past and even in the present, and God causes us to only remember those things because of scars, that so much just doesn't matter anymore. It just doesn't matter. It's almost like God once again is pulling back the curtain and showing us heaven is where we belong. This is heaven. This is not heaven. You can look no farther than your left hand. So of all the ways then that God would prepare us, maybe just maybe scars aren't the worst thing. I have a friend who has a scar on his right elbow. He dove across the finish line to go from close second to first. So now if I ever see him, he would say, you know what this scar says right here? It says first place. (laughs) I know of a mother, a young mother, it's a family friend of ours, who had a big scar across her abdomen. She was not afraid if anyone saw it. There might be people who would suggest that it's quite ugly and unsightly, but she doesn't care nor should she. Similar to what Jesus said in the gospel reading, a mother who is giving birth is in anguish and yet all of that goes away. Why? When she has her child, her grief and anguish turn to joy. So to that young mother, she can look at that scar and the world around her could think that it is ugly and unsightly. If, for example, this conversation happened when we were all at a pool and she was in a bathing suit, she doesn't care, nor should she, because it brings her such joy. The memory doesn't bring pain. The memory is when she welcomed her child into the world. How awesome! Could God not be doing the same through every single scar that you have, not only on your hands, but even on your minds and on your heart? Why do you think 
the scriptures go through such extent, such detail to describe what heaven is not. Who is Jesus in this vision? Jesus, the word, is not mentioned. Who is Jesus in this vision? The lamb. And you know what lambs were made for. Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, who would be the all-atoning sacrifice. Jesus, the one who went on the altar of the cross to pay for our sins. And up to this point, most frequently in the book of Revelation, John describes him as the lamb who was slain. You've seen that the past few weeks from Revelation 7, Revelation 5. We've looked at this. The lamb who was slain. He still bears the wounds of his crucifixion. Remember when he appeared to his disciples, what did he show them? He showed them his hands and his side and his feet, the wounds which bear his crucifixion. When he rose from the dead, those things didn't disappear. No, those are the scars, the victory marks. What the world was trying to do, what death itself was trying to accomplish, and what Satan was seeking was actually the undoing of all of those three, the unholy trinity. He welcomed, Jesus welcomed death, and yet what ended up happening was that Jesus was not changed, death was changed when it decided to collide with the Savior. Because when he rose from the grave, he can still even bear the wounds slash the scars of his crucifixion. Because the scars actually prove that God works through what is painful in order to bring what is good. He works through anguish in order to bring glory. And he works through what is painful and awful, even death itself, in order to bring about a reality that we could never have imagined, much less fashioned on our own. Look no farther than the lamb. Could it be that the fact that you know what insecurity is for yourself, that that actually prepares you better for heaven? This would mean nothing to you if you've never locked your door, you've never heard reports of a burglary, or you didn't have a security system. That there are, the gates are wide open. It heightens your appreciation for heaven and the joyous reality you possess in your heart of faith even now. That's a scar. Insecurity is a scar that actually helps you for heaven. The things that have happened in the dark, the things you have done are those things that others have done to you or to others, shameful, evil, and deceit. The fact that you know that that exists is a scar and you hate it and so do I. And yet all of that does what? It is the means by which God has further prepared you for the place where that doesn't exist. But the fact that you know that it does exist heightens your appreciation for and even motivation and anticipation as you live now. You know what that is because you too have scars. So I don't know what that is for you. Maybe it was somebody who deeply wounded you with their words, somebody who's hurt your family, somebody who has hurt your job, somebody who's tried to take your legs out from under you, somebody who's hurt your spouse, your kids. I don't know what that is for you. Could have been somebody like those who were coming after the Apostle Paul. On account of your faith, they attacked you. None of us, I think, have ever been stoned before. They thought he was dead. And his response is, let's walk right back in. (laughs) We must undergo many trials as we enter the kingdom of God. Those scars have a happy ending. Look at the people he was able to reach, and you will one day meet Christians from Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Look at what Jesus is saying. 
In a little while, you will have grief. They're going to lose their friend, their Lord, their Savior, and they think all is lost. And yet, what does he do? He promises them joy, not just to be realized in the future, but on the third day when he would walk out of that tomb. And would death have its hold? No. So I don't know what that is for you. It could be the loss of a loved one. And each day is very challenging, but you know what? We don't just say one thing. All of us are theologians. The only question is, are you a good one or not? Good theologians say both things, not just one thing. You will have grief. Jesus promises that. At the end of John 16, he says, in this world, you will have trouble. That's one thing. But then he goes on to say the other thing. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In a little while, you will have grief. And it will be grief of many different kinds. Job loss, financial ruin, familial fractures, marital strife, pain, loss, grief, mourning the death of loved ones. You will have grief. And we, it is awful. And it is terrible. And you can express that however you want. There's only one rule in grief. Thou shalt not despair. You could cut down a tree. You could sometimes swear to heaven. Lord, help me in this. Prophets of old did nothing different. But we don't just say that thing. We say the other thing too. That there is joy unparalleled. And that God has given this to you. That this is real. This is true. Our Savior rose from the grave so you wouldn't be stuck with one thing. So you would have both. You have a Savior who most certainly rose from the grave and gives you heaven and it is a joy you have now no matter the circumstances in this life. You can fail at life, and yet life can't take that joy away. So, dear Christian, we always say both things. Always. It is awful. Whatever causes grief and mourning and sadness, no matter what it is, big or small, it is awful. But we have a joy that will never be taken away, no matter if the scars are on our hands, on our knees, on our mind, or even on our hearts. And this joy, my friends, is not only complete, but no one ever and nothing will ever be able to take that away. God grant that to us all. Amen. <laughs>